Hey everyone, my name is Patrick Brown. Welcome to another episode of Crown and Crozier, the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Vatican II declared that bishops exercise their authority in reference to the portions of the Lord's flock assigned to them. For some bishops, the specific portion of the flock entrusted to their care resides within the boundaries of a national seat of government. Joining us to shed light on what it means to serve as shepherd in the capital city of a G7 country like Canada is Archbishop Terence Prendergast, former Archbishop of Ottawa Cornwall and current Apostolic Administrator in the Diocese of Hearst Moussigny in Northern Ontario. We cover a lot of ground with his grace, from pastoral outreach to prime ministers, to the future of publicly funded Catholic schools, to informing public policy during a time of pandemic. We also hear about what the Lord shepherds can and can't do when certain sheep in the nation's capital start to wander from the pasture. Enjoy the show and thanks for tuning in. There are two swords. And the question is, which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die his majesty's good servant at God's first. Thanks very much for joining us today. We are joined by Archbishop Terence Brendegast. Your Grace, thank you so much for being with us on the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, Patrick. We understand you recently had some change in responsibilities from the bustling metropolis of Ottawa. You now find yourself in Hearst Moosonee in Northern Ontario. And from what I understand, the diocese is approximately 42,000 square kilometers in size, or 109,000 square kilometers, 42,000 square miles, about the size of Tennessee, and serving a congregation totaling about 27,000 souls. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about how that transition has been for you. I think you just have the figures for Hearst, but if you put Moosey in there, it's much bigger. It's 1.1 million square kilometers, and oh my goodness, uh, it's one third of the province of Ontario. However, most of that is uninhabited, it's rocks and lakes and uh, trees. Uh, it's divided into the southern part, Hearst. Basically, we have about uh, 20 parishes and missions, and the, the Moosey part maybe has a, a dozen parishes and missions. The Hearst part is made predominantly Francophone, so I get, I'm practicing most of my French uh, regularly, and the northern part is basically people speak uh, English and Cree. I have not been able to go to the indigenous communities because uh, most of them are closed down because of sanitary health restrictions. But it's quite a, a challenging diocese. There have been some difficulties recently, uh, tensions in the clergy and so on, so that the Holy See, after making a visitation, uh, invited the bishop to resign and look for some other uh, way of serving the church. And they've asked me in the interim to work with the diocese for a year and a half or so to get the place ready to receive a new bishop. So. I originally thought it was going to be a bit shorter. I thought maybe six to 10 months, but it seems to me now with COVID and with no nuncio in Ottawa, we're waiting for a new nuncio to come. It's probably be a year plus, uh, but I'm ready for this. And uh, it's been a nice lowering of uh, the pressure in terms of numbers of things that come across my desk. It's been, uh, it's been a real uh, change and uh, a good change. I, I'm enjoying it. And, and your title has shifted somewhat. Apostolic Administrator. Could you perhaps let our listeners know what that position entails? Well, an apostolic administrator is somebody not chosen by the diocese. For example, when a diocese is vacant, 
the consultors, the priests can get together and elect the diocesan administrator. But if the circumstances are special, often the Holy See will decide, we think we need to name a bishop to do this. And I've had the experience of doing this twice before, when uh, the Diocese of Yarmouth became vac vacant in 2002. I was named the Apostolic Ministry as Archbishop of, of Halifax. And then when I came to Ottawa, I was asked to be the Apostolic Administrator of uh, Alexandra Cornwall when uh, Bishop Danfus was transferred to Sault Ste. Marie. The interesting thing is that uh, my predecessor in Alexandria Cornwall became my successor in Ottawa Cornwall. Uh, in one, one instance, I actually combined the two dioceses. The two dioceses were united in the person of the bishop in persona episcopi. It's kind of special. So I actually became the bishop of Alexandria Cornwall. And then, of course, later in the new archdiocese of, of Ottawa Cornwall and the situations are there. So this is my third time being an apostolic administrator. One thing you alluded to with respect to the amalgamation of your two previous dioceses, Ottawa and Alexandria Cornwall. My understanding is that merger actually required an act of parliament. I think that's perhaps a good segue into our subject matter for today and for today in terms of the nexus, the connection, the engagement between religious authorities and, and civil authorities. Perhaps you can speak to that, that very local example of why an act of parliament was required to effectuate that amalgamation. The dioceses are united already ecclesiastically. So there's no Alexander Cornwell and there's no Ottawa, but each of those was a civil corporation. The diocese of Bytown, which became Ottawa, which became the Archdiocese of Ottawa, was uh, uh, chartered civilly. So the, uh, the bishop owns the possessions of the diocese. He's, uh, he manages the territory. We have this corporation's whole idea in Canada. That diocese was created before Canada came into existence. It was the the, the two Canadas, Upper and Lower Canada, in 1847. So an act of parliament was there. So we uh, need to have an act of parliament, either Ontario or federally. Uh, Alexander Cornwall was created by an act of the provincial parliament of Ontario in 1890. So you have two civil corporations, we need to bring them together. So the lawyers are working on how to get uh, an act of parliament. It's being sponsored by a senator from New Brunswick, I believe was willing to take it on. And so there's there's niceties that need to go because of tax laws, of other benefits and, 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 and privileges. And they felt that because we had maybe greater acquired rights in, in terms of uh, constitutional issues, uh, because of the federal parliament, they decided to go that route. So that's a really interesting piece of history. I admit when I first read the press release regarding the amalgamation, I was a little taken aback when I saw the line about an act of parliament required. The cynic in me started piping up in my head thinking, well, what does the government need to get into the business of the church's organizational structure? But that's a fascinating tidbit. And I think that's a good point of transition where we can dive in a little bit more into that engagement and interaction between the church and the government. I, I want to take a, a bit of time to talk about your experience serving as an archbishop in a national capital. I'm sure it's probably no surprise for you to hear this. There is a perception out there among believers and non-believers, and I'll claim some measure of guilt in this from time to time, where there's a sense of, okay, the, the top church official, the archbishop in a national capital, whether it's Ottawa, Washington, London, Canberra, that that archbishop has a special connection or a special responsibility over the elected officials, the high-ranking government officials, 
in that home country uh, who profess the Catholic faith. What would you say in response to that uh, to that perception? Well, I remember when I was uh, transferred from Halifax to Ottawa, a number of the parishioners in Halifax said, oh, good, you're going to go and straighten out all those politicians in Ottawa. And I said, I don't think so. You have to realize that technically the bishop is responsible for all the people in his territory. But the question of uh, the role of the Archbishop of Ottawa is a complex one, and it's also something that's misunderstood, I think. Uh, People think that I'm in charge of all the politicians who are in Ottawa. Well, each of them who is a Catholic has a home bishop. And uh, I think that they are responsible for the care of those people. I am able to offer whatever spiritual consolation or interest that the people who are in Ottawa ask of me or that I feel is necessary because they've either stepped out of line and made a claim about the Catholic Church that's not true. But I, I'm not an inquisitor. I need to go and encourage people and, and uh, speak with them. I remember uh, earlier on uh, in my time in Ottawa, uh, Mr. Trudeau had been elected leader of the Liberal Party and he made a particular pronouncement. And I said, well, I think, you know, we need to talk about this uh, because I think uh, you need to understand that the Catholic Church and the, the, the values that are espoused by Catholics are important. So he came and spoke with me. We had a good conversation. Of course, it's off the record. It's confidential as it would be uh, uh, with the doctor or lawyer, but I did have a very cordial conversation with him. I did meet uh, Mr. Uh, the leader of the, uh, the conservative, uh, Andrew uh, Andrew Shear, uh, Shear, right? A, a couple of times, but they were really mainly socially. And uh, his father was a permanent deacon at Ottawa, so we had occasion to meet. We didn't really talk about anything personal. He didn't ask of me that of me, and I didn't uh, have a reason to approach him. If somebody does have an issue, then I try to address those things with them and bring them up, but. I, I exercise the leadership that is asked of me when they when they bring it to me, and I try to articulate what the Catholic faith is, knowing that uh, what is said in Ottawa sometimes gets broadcast elsewhere. Uh, I'm not the, I don't have a pulpit for uh, Canada. I have a pulpit for my own diocese, my own individual believers. The other thing too is that uh, a number of times after Mr. Trudeau was elected leader of the country, prime minister. Uh, he had a number of encounters with uh, Cardinal Lacroix, who came to his office. They met occasionally. And that's uh, Cardinal Lacroix from Montreal, uh, correct? From Quebec, from Quebec, yeah, uh, Quebec City. I had to respect that. I mean, the prime minister can ask advice from whoever he wants, and they are, the cardinal is certainly free to accept their request to, to meet with him. And so I respect that. Uh, what they said, I don't know. I didn't report on my meeting with Mr. Trudeau to anybody else and or to Cardinal Lacroix. But people are curious what was said and what were the issues. and. It's complex. The other thing, too, is that Ottawa is the, is the center of the or the location of the headquarters of the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops. And uh, the permanent council meets there regularly. And so in certain ways, they have dialogue with the government and that's their proper function. Sometimes they will ask me to go and represent them on a particular occasion. I've gone to speak on Parliament Hill to senators and others who are interested in the question of life issues and so on. But uh, and also. As you know, the March for Life is held in Ottawa and people come across Canada. I usually introduce the bishops who are there. Ottawa, like other capitals, has a large number of ambassadors, many of whom are Catholic. And often they will come and visit with me at acts of courtesy or, or meet with them socially. So I'm always happy to accept an invitation to meet with any one of them. Uh, but I also mentioned, you know, and they know that the nuncio is the diplomat for the Holy See and the Holy Father. So it's a nice line. I didn't mind walking it. I didn't felt I was ever put in a corner in what I had to do. 
and I tried to be as faithful as I could to requests that were made to me without intruding, but also without just standing by. I think sometimes you do have to say things. You have to articulate things when misapprehensions of what Catholic doctrine is are articulated. And I say, no, this is what's being said, and this is really what the truth is. And I think we have to be faithful to that. So may I ask, looking back in your more than 10 years of service in the Ottawa Archdiocese, this one-on-one engagement that you had or interaction or consultation or pastoral outreach with Catholic members of parliament or other elected officials, did that occur as much as you might have anticipated coming to the national capital? I don't know what my anticipations really were. I, my idea is to try to go and learn what you have to do and uh, to respond as you can. Sometimes I felt people uh, expected more of me in terms of leadership for the whole country, and I need to stand back and do what I can, but not to intrude in their territory. But I've often collaborated with the bishops. They would sometimes ask me what you would do about such and such a situation, and I would generally share with them what I've learned from my time in Ottawa. Uh, maybe another personality, another bishop would do something differently than I do. Maybe they would be stronger. I know that Archbishop Gervais had a greater number of contacts with Prime Minister Chrétien and, uh, and Martin when he was there. But we've had a grand, a large evolution over the years. When Archbishop Vachon was the archbishop up until 1953, he often had the Prime Minister in the cabinet for dinner at his house. That would never happen today. The role of the archbishop in a civil perception has changed drastically. For example, when I was in Halifax, I was number 21 on the protocol list, so I was always invited to anything that the government had. Whether that continues to be the case in in Halifax, I don't know. But I know in Ottawa, I was frequently asked to attend federal issues and celebratory issues by certain countries, and gradually over the years, that's fallen off. When I was made Archbishop of Ottawa, there was a great coverage of my installation, in part because it was a religion editor for the Ottawa citizen. That job has been done away with. Religion's not that important for the media these days. And of course, that also stands in line with the falling down of the role of the Archbishop in in civic life. I at one time asked uh, one of the representatives of the United States Embassy, I said, is there a reason why the Archbishop of Ottawa has fallen off the invitation list to the July 4th reception? And my first few years, I got it every year, and then it stopped. France still sends it for Bastille Day and so on. How long that will continue, I don't know. But this tells you that religion is being marginalized. Perhaps it's good for us as Christians to be humble and to give up the trappings that we once had. And anyway, that's the way it's going. At one time, the nomination of the Archbishop of uh, Halifax, for example, would have been the front page news. It's now in the back pages or bottom with a small notice. I think there was very little coverage of, uh, of Archbishop Damfus's nomination. It was mentioned, but very little coverage. That's the kind of thing that's happening. There's the marginalization of religion, the secularization of our society goes on a pace. And I think Archbishop Damfus will probably carry on his his role as Archbishop of Ottawa Cornwall may be in a, in a more diminished way than was the case in, even in my time. In Cornwall, uh, basically, if the bishop says something and he wants it to be uh, articulated in the local newspaper, the standard freeholder, we would send a press release. It would be treated basically as news that would be on the paper. How long that will last, I don't know. But I guess smaller centers where people are better known, 
and and where the, the the influence of the bishop is greater maybe that will continue but certainly in big cities like ottawa montreal toronto things will only come out if the archbishop or the cardinal or whoever's there makes a point of it or really speaks to the government saying this is unfair i think this is what's happening with the covid regulations in some of our cities archbishop miller in vancouver pleads with the government to say we need religious practice uh, religious practice is essential service it should be better treated than it is and in ontario we've been much more fortunate i think the premier mr ford has been had liaison with the cardinal's office in toronto and the bishops have been working with them they've done a much better job i think in handling the COVID thing than other provinces have but that's because the relationship is there as solid and it's appreciated by both sides but for example in quebec city the cardinal has had to or the archbishop of montreal have had to make pleas to be heard they were even not even conceded a response to their complaint to their 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 request for communication mr legault is basically super secular and the churches and religious groups are treated well as an afterthought so those are the changes that have taken place in the role of religion in society is certainly in canada it's 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 secularization on a on a quick downhill course and it's, it seems to be unstoppable in your seat in ottawa in your diocese you had the the head office for the national bishops conference perhaps you can tell us a little bit around how you assessed when i'll say going going at it alone or going alone for lack of a better term when that was not your preferred strategy and when you sought to confer and to collaborate with your fellow bishops on a, on a given issue well one of the things you should know is that one of the few things i knew when i came to ottawa is where the bishops conference was located because i'd often been there i was a member of the permanent council when i was archbishop of halifax i really appreciated the attempt every time that we met to try to form consensus even if there was a difference of opinion i think the bishops wanted to speak with one voice and Sometimes that meant compromises that not everybody was happy with, but I think we came to an understanding that we are in this together and we would work uh, at, not at cross purposes, but as much as possible together. Many of those issues are there. I, I always found I came away from meetings at the Permanent Council because I also served for Ontario. I always came away enriched and encouraged by my meetings with the bishops. It was, it's a wonderful fraternity. It's difficult. The issues that we have, in Canada and around the world are complex, but I find the men are prayerful, they're open, they're, uh, they, they love the church, they love their people, and they want everything they can for them. So I'm curious, how does that factor into your engagement with civil authorities and on public policy issues? When you're bringing your voice forward to a government audience, how and do you focus on, you know, we can't just be perceived, uh, we, we, and we don't just want to engage as another political player as a special interest. So how how do you bring that lens of ensuring that preaching the gospel is front and foremost to your engagement in the public square? Well, I think mainly it's by teaching our people themselves. If you proclaim the gospel in a powerful way, at least the Catholic press will take notice of it and give it some publicity. And then sometimes the media will pick it up. The media communicates. So Oftentimes, you need to say something that somebody will pick up and they'll quote it in Vancouver and, and they go to, go to Australia and they'll come back and then somebody in Canada will say, oh, can we talk to the bishop about that? You know, or sometimes the Holy Father will say something, as he did about every person needs to have a family, including gay people. You know, what do you think about that? Well, I got called. 
And one of the striking things is uh, I accepted to go on to uh, one of the radio stations here. And then the interviewer said, well, you know, I'm gay. What are you going to say to me? But I was as honest as I could. I spoke to him in a loving way and a frank way. And I got compliments and letters from people on either side. Some people were very angry with me, but some people are also very grateful, including evangelical Christians and others who are not of our faith. They said, thank you for standing up for marriage the way it should be understood. And we need to care for people who suffer from same-sex attraction or who are they have that as their as their as their life project. But we need also to speak the truth of the gospel to them. So sometimes things come in different ways uh, for you to teach. But I think we need to find that those moments are teaching moments and evangelized moments. And I hope that to the extent I can, I use it as a, in a positive way and not negative way for the church and uh, that, uh, that the Lord is pleased with it. And, and just sticking with that theme of positive moments and storytelling, looking back on your time, is there a moment that stands out to you where you feel like the church was at its best in terms of being very clear, very compassionate, very charitable in its profession of the gospel on a particular public policy issue. A few examples spring to mind, perhaps uh, the, the Canada Summer Jobs Grant. Uh, this is uh, federal funding for summer students, and there was a problematic clause in the application form that required employers and applicants to attest to a rather liberal or progressive interpretation of our fundamental expression of constitutional rights and freedoms in this country, the Canadian Charter. And there was a lot of pushback, not just from the Catholic Church, but from many religious groups and, and from non-religious groups. Does that moment stand out for you in retrospect in terms of really serving as a, as a good case study of what the church can bring to bear in the public domain? No, that was a good one. What struck me is that many of the media saw that this was a trap that the Liberal Party had set up or the government had set up for believing communities in, in, in search of another agenda. And I said, they, even though they would probably agree with LGBT issues and those issues of abortion, et cetera, that were, that were behind the government's mo- uh, mandate, they did not accept the way in which the government did it, that it was really disrespectful of the rights of citizens. And I think citizens have a right to participate in things without signing on with a particular government clause. So I think that was, that was a very positive thing and a good thing. I think other things that I, I, I think were significant is the, the uh, introduction of the Good Friday Way of the Cross through the downtown before the Parliament building and the Supreme Court and the National Gallery and other places. Many, many people wanted to say, we want to profess our faith publicly. And of course, when you've got a large number of people moving around either in the sunshine or with umbrellas one year uh, before the, these iconic images of the Supreme Court and the Parliament building and the eternal flame and the, the National Gallery in St. Patrick's in Notre Dame, it attracted the media. And for me, it says that the church is not dead, the church is alive, people that want to profess their faith and so on. Stepping back and, and looking at a country like Canada and its tradition of religious freedom and a constitutional framework, some fundamental elements of which were influenced by that commitment to religious freedom and the coexistence between the British Protestants and the French Catholics at the birth of this nation. So in some ways, you had a front row seat to the contemporary expression of that tradition. During your time in Ottawa, was there anything that struck you? Was there anything that struck you about those traditions which are so fundamental to the national character of this country and the trajectory that we're on in terms of looking down the road for the future? 
Well, I think all of the situations that we're dealing with go back to the question of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's transformed the founding documents because all of these espouse personal autonomy. And personal autonomy means my body, my choice, means I can choose when I want to. Whether I want to give birth to a child in the womb or not, whether I want to die or not. And I think we have we did not understand, I don't think, when that charter came into being, how activist Supreme Court judges would transform uh, the constitution that we had. So that's really something we need to study and we need to look at. But I think that's really been perhaps the revolutionary situation that's taken place in our country. And we are now cultivating or bearing the fruits of that or the excesses of that that come into play. And I think this is what's really led to a radical secularization. Many people, of course, are grateful for the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and I think we should be as well. But the role of religion is going to be increasingly, even though it's a key point in there, it's going to be marginalized because of the other things that are going to be seen to be countervailing. So the mass that we would have every year on Canada Day in the cathedral in the morning, saying, uh, Canada at the end of it, I found increasingly that it's a kind of bittersweet reality. I love my country, Canada, for its riches and its blessings and the opportunities it offers, but I'm saddened by the way in which we have departed from values that are fundamental to humanity and to Christians and to believers of all kinds. I made common cause with uh, an imam and a rabbi uh, in articulating the reason for being concerned about uh, euthanasia, but that's four years ago, and that seems like a lifetime away because the changes made by the Supreme Court, a unanimous decision at the time, by the way, the court has ordered that uh, people be allowed to choose when they die. And of course, we're simply expanding the criteria. And while the church and others said, this is a slippery slope, they said, no, no, it's not a slippery slope. What they predicted has come true. And I think it's going to mean an increasingly difficult challenge for Christians and Catholics, particularly, to witness to their faith and to live their faith in our country. So old Canada can be can be said as, oh, I'm happy if Canada, oh my God, Canada, what have we done? Where are we going? To me, the litmus test is what's happened with the euthanasia. We have gone rapidly downhill on a trajectory that took the Netherlands and Belgium 30 years, and we've done it in four or five. It's, it's amazing. And I think it's not going to stop. So I'm a proud Canadian, but I'm also at times ashamed at the way that we've parted from the real values that established our country as a place of respect for life, respect for the dignity of a human person. I'm struck that in looking at opportunities to renew, recover, restore that tradition, automatically one thinks of looking to the schools and the education and the enculturation that our young generation, our next generation receive. And here in Canada, again, we have a very unique construct insofar as the denominational or the religious identities of schools, including Catholic schools, are guaranteed protections under the constitutions. As you well know, the status of the Catholic school system, the separate school system, is certainly a flashpoint in many disagreements and debates around uh, the role of faith, the role of religion in public square and any kind of state sanction for it. Given the wealth of experience that you've accumulated, what do you see as the, the future for Catholic schools in Canada, given the unique 
construct we have here in our country? I think the answer to that is a personal engagement by each person who teaches or is involved in the Catholic school uh, with Christ and with his church. And if they don't have that, we're going to lose our Catholic schools. I think that's one of the challenges that we have. I remember a lesson that I learned, I guess, or appropriated when I went to Halifax. Because they don't have Catholic schools except one school in Halifax, which was a girls' school, and that's become coeducational in Halifax, but and a couple of small schools here and there. There's no Catholic school system in Nova Scotia. They had a gentleman's agreement that these schools would be taught by sisters, and even though they're public schools, they'd be in fact Catholic, and then these other ones would be Protestant or or multi-religion. Uh, that changed over years through assimilation of one group to the other and departure of religious sisters and so on. So that changed there. It's changed in Newfoundland. It's changed in Quebec, where they've done away with the separate schools. I think the question is going to be, how long are we going to be able to continue to keep them in Ontario, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Northwest Territories? I don't know. I, I would hope we'd continue to have them. But I, when I went to Halifax, I thought, well, if we just had the right catechetical program, we would be able to transform the lives of these young people. But that's to get it backwards. What you have to have is you have to have an encounter with Christ first, then a desire to learn. I remember a young man who grew up in Catholic family and was marginally practicing. He would go to Mass on Sundays, but he had only been to confession once or twice in his life, and he had a religious experience that transformed him. He couldn't get enough about the Catholicism of the Catholic Church, the Bible, Jesus, and so on. It changed his life. And it seems to me that's the model we need to foster that somehow or other we need to engage our teachers in our Catholic schools and our principals and get them to have had some type of encounter with Christ, a commitment to Christ, not just nominal and uh, occasional practice of the faith, but regular convicted faith. And if we can have that, the Catholic schools can continue. There's going to be pressures on us because anybody can get into a high school. That's one of the things that the NDP government changed. They allowed uh, people who have any faith to come into schools. And of course, that puts pressure on us, as happened in Montreal. Uh, the bishops of Quebec argued that we need to do something special in Montreal because the Catholic Protestant division is not going to work anymore. And we respectfully disagreed. I think some of the bishops in, in English speaking Canada said, well, they said, let us run it. Let's decide it. But the fact of the, fact of the matter is, a decision in Quebec also affects the rest of the country. Because there was this trade-off, Catholic schools in, in Ontario and Protestant schools in Quebec, along with the majority in Quebec of Catholic and the majority Protestant in Ontario. That's changed. Canada's changed. And so I think the renewal of education is going to depend upon the conversion of people. That's why evangelization is such an important thing, the new evangelization. We have a new catechetical program for uh, Catholic schools in Ontario, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Northwest Territories called Growing in Faith, Growing in Christ. It's a beautiful book. But if you don't have a relationship with Christ or don't have a conviction about the church, no matter how much you read it, how much you say it, it doesn't communicate because you don't communicate because people, young people pick up whether the teachers really believe this or not, you know, whether they're going through emotions. On the, on the other side is when you have committed Catholics in a particular school, it, it's marvelous. I've been to some wonderful Catholic schools in, in, in Ottawa and the region and in Cornwall. And I'm amazed at what some teachers and principals are able to do. But sometimes you change the principal and the whole tone of the school changes because that person is more interested in 
making sure our, our students get the highest marks possible and so on, whether the Catholic component is important or not, doesn't touch them. And I think that's the kind of thing where from the top down, we need to evangelize our superintendents, our directors of education, our uh, principals, particularly vice principals, and of course the teachers. And unless we do that, I think it's just a question of uh, it's moot when, when the schools will end. It's, it's a trajectory that seems to be foreseen. Now, maybe I'm a Cassandra speaking this way, and uh, it's not going to happen that way because we should never underestimate the capacity of institutions to reform themselves. But it's very difficult, very challenging. That's the challenge we all have is we can't just get the perfect textbook. We need to get a lived experience of the faith at the core of that. And that will change, change life. And that's the only thing that will also change our society is that the people really believe that, that what the Christians and Catholics hold is true and know and want to know and, and appreciate Jesus Christ because of the love that they manifest to each other and to the world, then it's going to be different. Everything you've just articulated in terms of placing that personal encounter with Christ at the heart of that education, many people would say, well, that's at odds with an enduring ability to receive backing from the state in terms of funding. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on whether there is a tension there. If there is, how do we resolve it? And do you think we should prepare for a point down the road where we go all in, we place a premium on that personal encounter with Christ in the Catholic school system, knowing that that state funding may may evaporate as a result. I'm of both minds on that. I'm not sure exactly what to do on that. I think we need to be ready in any case. I think we should offer evangelizing moments for all our staffs, all our teachers. One of the reasons why I have allowed two of my priests to have part-time work in parishes, but also to be working with the Ottawa Catholic School Board and the, and the uh, Eastern Ontario Catholic School Board is because of the role they can bring of helping our, our teachers, our faculty members, and our leaders to have that Catholic faith. It also depends very much on the directors, and we have very good directors right now, and I hope we always will have. We've had good directors before, but their role and their capacity to influence only goes so far. It has to be every school, it has to be every place, and that means the priests and the parishes need to be visiting the schools, they need to be known, and they need to be welcomed, and they need to have a collaboration between clergy and laity. And I think an engaged laity will transform things. If the laity are not involved, then it's difficult. So uh, I, I don't want to be pessimistic, but I think we need to be aware of the forces that are going to be uh, cause us difficulties down the road and see what we can do to, to collaborate with them and to work on them. So we've spoken a lot about government and engagement at the national level. On the education question, we get a little bit more into the provincial and the local and that's where I'd like to rest for the remainder of our conversation and circling back to the big issue of the day, coronavirus and the measures and the restrictions that have been put in place as a result of that. And naturally, for purposes of this conversation, we're curious to explore the restrictions that have impacted religious services and houses of worship. Now that we're almost a year into this pandemic, at least here in Ontario, what's your assessment of the approach taken by civil authorities, uh, let's stick with Ontario and the city of Ottawa, in terms of the treatment that's been extended to the celebration of religious services and the ability of houses of worship to remain open. 
there's no one answer to this. Uh, one of the things you should know is that uh, even in church people, there are some who are, let us say, very cautious about what may be permitted, and those who are kind of laxist, if you will, who would say, well, we need to put some steps to do into practice. We don't want to go overboard. And so the question of masking and closures and that kind of thing. I think what happened in Ontario is that the Cardinal's office in Toronto and represented the Catholic bishops of Ontario met with the premier early on and with a representative of his government so that there is a kind of understanding that we would work together to assure what they call a safe worship place. Uh, I think worship safe is the name of the document. And we would try to be as cooperative with the government as possible, but also insistent as well as we could with them about the need to keep things open. We've been fortunate in Ottawa because the extent of the virus uh, infection rate has not been as high there as, say, in Toronto, Peel, and York regions, which uh, suffered greatly. Uh, we've been lucky to be able to have, most of the time, 30% access to the sacraments and to worship services, which I think is responsible and reasonable. We've shown that we can keep people safe, that we can register people, that we can sanitize hands and that kind of stuff, do everything we can to make sure that people are not frightened. But when Catholics come into a church and they discover that one person who has a medical condition is not wearing a mask, they panic. Or others, uh, you know, insist that they don't want to wear a mask and so on. And we've got every everything that's in society is also present in the church. So the pastors want some guidance, and so we've given them a guidance. What I do in, in my celebrations is I wear a mask and I take it off when I'm speaking and at the altar, but I try to be as cautious as I can. I'm ordinarily not a preoccupied person, and I'm not about this, but I know others are. Some some of my priests didn't really want to celebrate Mass because they, they were afraid for their health. And I can't say to to the people who complain about Father X or Father Y that, you know, well, you have to understand that he's afraid. What priests are afraid? Yes, they are. They're like anybody else. And others don't have any fears at all, and they they don't follow the regulations. So I have to say, well, look, Father, I think you need to show leadership in this. So we've been we've been going back and forth. Toronto has been much more difficult for things. I honor, I admit the Cardinal has come up with creative solutions uh, to give a community to people, attend at a time. They can come through the morning, same thing with the ashes, because they've been locked down uh, and permitted only 10 people. And I guess the Cardinal felt that 10 people in a church, you know, the size, the size of, of Toronto is not, not really feasible. We need to do something different. You can criticize him positively or negatively, and people have. And I think he's steered the middle ground. Up here, having 10 people at church is fine. Uh, and we did that for a good number of while, a number of uh, months, number of weeks. And here we're back now to 30% and it's going well. But right after I celebrated mass in two parishes in the western part of Hearst, which is part of the Thunder Bay district, uh, they indicated the lockdown was coming the day after. Now they're back to a limited number of people. So I think the civil authorities are responding to local situations, which is good, rather than have a, a blanket thing for the whole province of Ontario. And Northern Ontario was not in the same condition as Toronto or Ottawa. And so I think I think the government officials have been reasonable. Some have not been. I don't want to point anybody out. But I think in Ontario, we've done a fairly decent job of steering between excessive precaution and excessive laxity. And we've really kept people safe in the churches. And uh, 
I, I commend the government of Ontario and the other people for what they've done in general. There may be some in, in particular locations that you can't do it. Some of our Catholics were concerned because they couldn't receive uh, communion on the tongue, and I respect that. And we reluctantly agreed. Uh, I remember trying to push the cardinal, and he felt the same way that we really should hold out the possibility for people to receive on the tongue. But that was a deal breaker, and the government would not have accepted it. And so reluctantly, we did that. I think in a few places they've allowed it uh, and it's been carried off well. And I commend those people who've done that. But in general, we have to have a common overview policy. And it, it's difficult for people who for months have not been able to receive the community because they will not receive on the hand. Those are the kinds of things where what you have here is, a, is the microcosm of the Catholic Church <laughs> visible in a particular issue. And But my view is that We've got to try to help the government to keep people safe and to help us overcome this uh, affliction in the best possible way. And I think we have to give them credit for trying hard. Maybe some have been too extreme, but I think in general, my experience has been relatively positive. May I ask, was there any point during the pandemic where you actually formulated a sense of, okay, what's a line in the sand in terms of action on the part of the government that would constitute an unacceptable infringement. Uh, bearing in mind that here in Ontario, at least in the early stages of the pandemic, when there was a lot of uncertainty, religious services did not make the cut in terms of inclusion on the province's list of essential services and houses of worship were closed. Did you ever have a sense of, okay, we, what's, what what looks like the government going too far? I really didn't uh, come up with that, I'm afraid. I uh, gave them marks for trying hard and for collaborating with us and contacting us. I suppose if they shut the parishes down, the churches down for an extended period of time beyond what was reasonable, I might have said, we need to protest. Uh, that's really what's happening in Vancouver with Archbishop Miller. He's saying, look, the curve is down. We need to have our people come back. Closing the churches entirely is just not right. Uh, so I think he got to that stage. It took him a bit. I mean, he waited, waited, he talked, and he said, look, we need to. And he started to write letters and protest and join others. We haven't gotten to that situation in Ontario. I think if we'd had something similar here, I would have joined the call for seeing the churches as essential. Uh, not just in keeping people safe, but the fact that religion is a very positive thing that helps people find peace and consolation and support because the community is a very supportive community. And I think that's really what I would have said to the people, but we didn't get to that point. And if it does come to that, I, I will say it, but I, I, I think we're making progress on it. I hope that that will be the, the legacy that we will have in Ontario is that among all the provinces, I think we had a kind of more reasonable uh, situation. Just keeping with that word legacy, do you think that there have been any any actions or any precedents set during this time that stand out as problematic and are ones that we really need to be attuned to going forward uh, and making sure that they don't become a permanent feature of the landscape in the interaction between the church and the state? Well, I would say that after this is all over, I think we should step back and have seminars and discussions and so draw the conclusions from this and share our positive experiences of the government's actions and our negative experiences. And I think give a kind of a summary of where we think we should go in the future because 
what people are saying is that these kinds of epidemics, even if they have been fairly rare, to the extent that the COVID one has been, but nonetheless, we had SARS uh, and we had uh, we had the Asian flu earlier, uh, Hong Kong flu. They are going to come back with certain recurrences, and we need to be ready for them. And I think we should draw conclusions now for what the future will be. I think governments have really become all-encompassing in their desire to keep people safe, and they know what's best. And you can see even in the government the tensions between those who want to open the economy and those who want to keep people safe, that no matter what step is done, I would always read in the paper, you could read the side of the people saying it's too much or it's not enough. Even our citizens are quite divided. So I think religion, our faith, our Catholic community, but also Muslims and Jews and other religions of the world should speak with the government and say, look, in the future, when these things come up, this is what we need to do. The other thing is that's a peculiarity of the Catholic churches and of some of the Christian bodies is that Holy Communion is an integral part of our life. And that involves what they would consider risky behavior, putting the the tongue, the host on the tongue of someone and possibly being contaminated by saliva. That's, that's an issue that they're going to be concerned about. It's not there in the Jewish community. It's not there in the Muslim community, but it's it's there in us in a, in, a, in a very special way. And I think that's really one of the things that the civil authorities have not realized how important Eucharistic uh, assembly and reception of Holy Communion is for a Catholic Christian. And I think we need to share that with them. And they're going to say, well, then you need to find ways of, of doing this. this uh, that's uh, not as risky for the faith. Because with COVID, when somebody is infected going to church, he or she can potentially in fact, other people who are not church goers by their interactions. So, I mean, Catholics are have a, have a life in the church community, but they also have a life in the civil community by their work, by their employment, by their recreation, etc. So you can see why the government says that we need to be involved in this. And I say, yes, but don't overreach. And the question is, what is overreach? It's really interesting you make that distinction for Holy Communion and how that sets apart Catholicism from some of the other major religions and some of the unique issues and challenges that we've had to deal with in the midst of this pandemic. And perhaps just as a closing question, a closing thought, sticking with that theme of living a life that's set apart, do you see any silver linings in the midst of coronavirus and in the midst of our current ambient culture, which you were talking about previously in terms of rising secularization? Do you think there are any silver linings that Catholics can take away have we learned, have we learned, are we learning better how to live a life set apart and one that is committed to Christ? Well, I think we're living a life apart by being home and watching mass or a service on television or live streaming. That's been a good thing. And the question is, whether well, is that going to really perpetually affect or permanently affect our participation in the life of the sacraments? But I think we need to have Catholics articulate why the Eucharist is so important to them. In a way, like I do, not like I would think maybe we should get an op-ed piece in the newspapers that would be carried that would say why the Eucharist is so important and why this has been such a loss for many people, painful loss for many people. Certainly on the Catholic websites and uh, uh, internet material, there's been a lot of reflections on that, and I think we need to share that with other people. Uh, we need to get what's in our community out to the others so that they understand us and appreciate us and. Perhaps a letter to the government saying, Mr. Premier, this is what we learned from it, and we'd like to share with you our gratitude for what you've done to keep us safe. 
but also our fears that the overreaching aspects of uh, government regulations really have caused us to be concerned about the future of, of the right to worship and the right to worship in our normal ways. So I think we need to be polite, clear, and articulate, and also positive. If, if, you, if you present the thing positive to people, they will appreciate your gratitude, and perhaps that will influence them for the future. They obviously know that the Catholics are voting block, and uh, although they don't vote block in the same way as they used to, but they're an important part of the constituency. So believers are important to uh, certainly the government of Ontario and other places. And I think we need to say we appreciate the good things you've done and we're concerned about the things that we felt were maybe overreaches. Your Grace, this has been a wonderful, exciting, joyful exploration of all of your insights, all of your experience in your unique roles serving the church here in Ottawa and Ontario and Canada. We wish you the best in your new role. Thanks so much for being with us here today. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Crown and Crozier. If you haven't already done so, please head over to your favorite podcast player and hit subscribe. Also, we'd love for you to give us a rating. This helps us reach more listeners. If you enjoyed the episode, perhaps you consider supporting us with a donation. You can visit our website, crownandcrozier.com, and just click the little heart or the link in the show notes. Looking forward to having you with us again soon as we continue to explore all things church, state, and faithful citizenship.